Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. We're back, Andrew. The Labor Day edition of yang speaks we've always been here if you listen you know we we didn't go anywhere but yeah we're 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 back and and this time it's to talk about all of the stuff that's been going on the election 2020 uh 2020 is just the year that keeps on giving shitty things (laughs) so so hopefully we can so much has happened since our last our last conversation is like four weeks ago three or four weeks ago so many you've got both conventions which you spoke at You've got you crushed a Republican on CNN. Uh, we had well, two horror well, well, hurricanes. Well, to be clear, I did not speak at both conventions. <laughs> oh, yeah, I spoke at one. Sorry, you spoke at a convention. Uh, we were left off the card. That was the last conversation I think we had. Um, the 2020 race is tightening. We had double hurricanes in New Orleans. Our boy Chadwick Bozeman passed away. Um, that was a shocker. Um, Jacob Blake um, was shot brutally. Um, seven times, leading to more protests. Uh, I was on vacation for a little bit, which I don't get to do very often, so that was nice. You hung out with Dave Chappelle, which was kind of cool. Um, I now, did do that. Thank you, Dave. Happy belated. Or not, I mean, I was actually there on his birthday, So, but now his birthday's passed. So if you, <laughs> if you see him, you happy can say happy again. belated birthday. Um, and then now it's fall, man. Can you believe, Andrew, that We've been quarantined since March. Can you believe yeah, that? Yeah, that, that blew my mind. I, I said it's September the other day, and I thought, wow, that's six months. Uh, and one of the things that I believed, Zach, is that this summer was pretty awful uh, for many, many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was still summer in the sense that you could still just walk outside and you know you would look around and say, yeah, maybe things aren't all bad because you know, the sun is shining and the rest of it. Uh, I've been not excited about this fall uh and i've got kids who are school age and it does not look like their schools are operating in a normal way um and and so yeah i feel for folks but it's it's labor day and we're back at it we also have this very messed up sports schedule because a lot of people i know associate labor day with a return to certain sports as well mm-hmm. uh, which i mean the nfl is happening uh i'm pumped for the, the nfl yeah no, and I, like I, 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 I confess, I'm like I'm scratching my head as to whether the NFL is going to be able to operate the entire season because the NBA took massive uh, building precautions and the bubble and the rest of it. Like I would feel confident the NFL would, was playing if all the teams were together in some bubble somewhere. Right. Uh, but but if you have teams that are practicing and traveling around. Uh, even though the stadiums, uh, I think, will be half empty, you know, I, I'd be concerned. 
And football is something of an intermediate between baseball and basketball where it's outdoors, but people are in close proximity to each other. And, and that right. includes on the practice field. The So I'm a huge Buffalo Bills fan for anybody listening. So I'm very excited about the season. And it is very fitting that finally the Buffalo Bills are favored to win the AFC East. And then we have COVID and might not have a season. So there's that. Um, I think... I think we're going to have football. Uh, who knows if midseason it blows up. Um, but I think, you know, the way the Bills are handling it, they're like, look, it's just like part. this is part of our game, right? you got to prepare, um, take care of your body, and part of that is wearing a mask or um, staying quarantined and things like that. Um, also, from a dollars and cents, like, there's a lot of money on the line to have this season, so we'll see. Um, are you watching the NBA playoffs? Like, I find them, like, it sucks not having a crowd, but I do find them interesting. And the basketball is good, particularly down the stretch. Yeah, I've been watching the playoffs uh, off and on. And it, it is a different game. It's interesting. Um, you're right, the quality level is high, in part because the players are just sleeping in the same beds and not traveling anywhere. And so they just roll out of bed and, <laughs> and play each play other basketball. in the same, same gym two yeah. days later. Uh, I talked to someone who was in the bubble. A player just came out and uh, he said it's tough in there because you, you're reminded all the time that you're in a bubble and, you know, your families aren't there. Um, though I know the families just showed up. Um, uh, but I, I connected someone in the NBA to Jacob Blake's family as well. And and uh, so I've had some interaction with some folks who are in the NBA bubble uh, and it seems like its own world there. Uh, but I have been keeping up with it. I have been watching the games sometimes. Right. It's one one of the things we so we used to go the Buffalo Bills used to go to St. John Fisher College um, for training camp and they stopped because the the recovery and workout equipment and infrastructure is so complicated now that the that university just didn't have it. I want I'm I'd be fascinated to see. You know, I'm sure the Lakers have a state-of-the-art like training facility and recovery rooms and things like that. I'm not sure that they're actually in the Walt Disney bubble. Like, I, I'm actually very curious about the health of the players post post games, particularly. I'm not sure. Um, I think the the trainers and the staffs and the doctors all are like they they have space in the bubble. They've got their own. They have space. Uh, they need. Okay. They, they they do have offices in the bubble. I mean, if you got to see a specialist or your orthopedist, you know, you leave. So folks who are interested in who in the NBA is Yang Gang aligned. Um, <laughs> so JJ Redick, our guy, obviously, has donated 150k to Universal Basic Income Trials. Thank you, yep. JJ. Thank you, JJ. Uh, Daryl Morey donated to the Yang Gang the campaign and was spotted wearing a math hat in the bubble. Uh, so GM of the Rockets. Stan Van Gundy uh, has been Stan. tweeting very positive things about us lately. So he's a massive member of the coaching fraternity uh, and uh, is someone that that uh, I think a lot of people look up to and admire. So those are some of the folks that are in the NBA world that uh, we root for here at Yang Speaks because, you know, that they uh, are very, very enlightened folks or you know who see that that we could stand to do things in a different way yeah so let's get into it man i want to talk one of the things we haven't talked about a lot on this podcast is your views of the 2020 election like you get to say some stuff on cnn you get to say some stuff frankly on other people's podcasts um and we had a conversation with david axelrod two months ago something like that so a lot has changed since you really dove in um so 
high level, I'll set the stage and then I love your thoughts. So the DNC and the RNC that just had their conventions, they happened. Uh, you, congratulations, got to speak at the DNC, which was great. Um, Thank you, Yang Gang. Appreciate you making it happen. Appreciate you, Yang Gang. It's all because of you. Wasn't easy. Um, yeah. And since the conventions and since your conversation with Axelrod, um, the polls have tightened. They've tightened a bit. And we knew they would. That makes sense. Um, it's usually the other way. Usually the incumbent is in the lead and the challenger is closing the race. But in this case, it's the other way. Um, this is my takeaway from the conventions. and I want your thoughts on this election. So the Democrats have a general message, which I think is that Trump is unfit to lead in COVID. But if you looked at all their speakers, they did not all say that as simply. They said a bunch of things about Donald. Um, it was not, in my opinion, not as clear cut of a message. I didn't watch everything probably the way you had to for CNN, um, but I did watch a lot. Um, and then the Republicans, I thought, I don't like their message, but I think they're better at saying it in the sense that every single person on the RNC said that the left is bad because they're radical. There's a radical left is coming to get you and your family. And um, there's a lot of fear mongering. I, I yes. joked at the time. I was like, this isn't exactly there's nothing to fear, but fear itself. Instead, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, fear, a lot uh, of fear, <laughs> fear, the rampaging <laughs> mobs in the suburbs that will come, you know, like that. That was yeah. uh, essentially an explicit message. Like it, there, there was yes. zero um, pussyfooting around it. They were just like, and the mob is coming. And it's everything that happens. They can go back to this message. Right. Everything that happens, um, they just basically troll the left on, you know, so anytime Trump does something stupid or they get a bad press cycle that normally happens to the any political party, they can just take any clip of any Democrat they don't like and just say, this is the radical left. They're coming for you. And it's fear. It's visceral. And what I frankly, I don't love the message, but I love the tactic and that it's super consistent. You know what I'm saying? Like that is a powerful what we're rallying behind message, which I don't, which is to me, I'm terrified. Um, so a while ago you said Joe Biden's gonna be the next president of the United States. And you were saying it like, I'm looking at the numbers. This is what we got to do a lot of work, but I believe that's going to happen. Have you changed your view? Like what do you think this is a lock? Like where, where are you at, man? I'm still very optimistic that Joe and Kamala are on track to win. Uh, their lead is also consistent. It's in the high single digits. Let's call it seven or 8%. Uh, the lead is smaller in swing states, but the swing states are very much up for grabs uh, and Trump needs to win essentially most all of them in order mm -hmm. to get reelected. So I'm optimistic and to your law and order message, which I agree with Zach. I mean, they hammered it very, very hard. Joe actually has a polling advantage in terms of people's confidence about uh, a restoring a degree of public order and decorum like you know people have caught on that trump is probably not the best for uh clearing out some of these concerns or reducing protests or reducing violence so joe actually has advantages among voters about restoring public trust restoring peace uh addressing police brutality uh, trump's polling advantage consistently is on economic matters uh, people right. still have the sense of him as the business guy. Um, so I don't think this message is going to work for the Republicans. I, I, It's going to work on some people, obviously, but I don't yeah. think it's going to work uh, to win. And you have to respect their message discipline because I agree with you that they settled on a message and then they went for it. 
Uh, but I, I just think that most Americans can look at that message and be like, wait a minute, this is happening right. under Trump. Do I really think under four more years of Trump, like the the violence will go down as opposed to up? Um, so there, there's some obvious difficulty with the case they're trying to make. Yeah, the I think a lot of it's more of a moderate point I hear pretty consistently um, from, I guess, my world is that. The polls aren't accurate, not because they can't get the right data, because um, I think in the swing state polls, the state by state polls are relatively accurate in 2016, relatively, like within the margin of error. Um, and and these are showing they were showing Hillary losing or barely winning. And now they're showing Biden winning or barely winning. Right? It's kind of where you're at. Um, but there's this sentiment I hear a lot that is basically no one will admit they're voting for Trump. But when they get in the polling booth, they will. And I there, know there's those people. The sh- it's they work the on shy Trump Street. voters. The, yes, the, the shy I know Trump who they are. Um, where it's, I'm sure that there are like, a few. I'm sure there are a few shy Trump voters out there. Um, I don't think it's a this massive. It's on the margins. Yeah. I, I, to the extent that uh, that there's a, a concern right in front of us, it really is going to be around the process itself. Where are we going to know who won November third? Uh, when will we know? Who will declare victory? Like how how will various institutions settle on a winner? Uh, will Trump's supporters uh, claim victory no matter what? Uh, you know, like the the integrity of the process to me is the biggest unknown. Um, but if you ask me, do I think Joe Biden is going to, to get enough votes eventually over time because we might not be able to count them immediately? Uh, we've seen the vote counting issues in New York and other places. Uh, like that, that is the big question mark. Uh, one of the yeah. things that... 538 said, which I agree with, um, that this is not so much an election day as it is an election month. And that happens before the fact and after the fact. So before the fact, there are going to be a lot of states that have early voting and mail-in voting. So you should take advantage. I'm going to take advantage. Everyone should take advantage. Vote as soon as as you can. And then, unfortunately, it might stretch after election day, too, because some of the votes will uh, not have been counted yet. And so some of the states will not be able to declare yeah, you tweeted that the other day. It was good. Um, if you're Joe Biden, it's been a question for both of us. But start you. If you're Joe Biden, what are you doing to win? Like, what are you doing this? Uh, Dave Axelrod called it like see the ball into the glove. Um, like, what? If you're him, what are you doing right now? He just started traveling. Um, how would you handle it? Uh, I I think the traveling is optional personally you know i i i don't think that yeah. they should try and fall into a trap where it's like you know you got to barnstorm the country or whatnot i mean people understand the circumstances right. um like that the main variables coming up are the debates so if if uh staying put for a week uh, or more is helpful to be prepared for the debates which having been through it you and i i know like it might be uh to, in terms of seeing the ball into the glove, I like what they're doing in terms of presenting their plans, their counterpoint to Trump uh, on certain issues, uh, on the economy and police brutality and other issues. Uh, I, I think just maintaining a consistent story and thread um, is right. And um, just letting people know that, you know, like you are Joe Biden, you're not some radical extremist, <laughs> the, 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 yeah. the rest the rest of it. Uh, and you are on track to win. I mean, they, they raised over $360 million uh, last month, nuts. which I believe yeah. might be a, a record. 
Um, and so they they can not to say, I mean, like we all hate it when people start playing like where they're like coasting at the end. Like, you know, there's no coasting here. Um, right. But campaign smart. Uh, keep on um, putting out your own vision for what the country should be doing uh, and then prepare for the debates. Yeah, I think he has to hold his own in the debates um, big time. And then to me. If I was Joe Biden's team, which to be fair, like I think they're well run. I've, the, the people I've interacted with um, at the senior levels at campaign, which we have a good relationship with, are are talented and smart. Um, I would say if I was Joe's team, I would find a a phrase like they're they're going with the like we're the good guy. This guy's unfit to lead. Like that's kind of the message they're going with. I would find a clever way to say that. Um, Almost not gimmicky, but in a way that's catchy and interesting. Um, and I would tie everything back to that, every single thing. Um, and I think they do that, but not as well as the Republicans do, because right now they just tie everything back to the radical left coming for your kids, radical left burning up your CBS soon. Um, like, and and I say that when we were running, Andrew, we our thread line, no matter what, when it was when it was horrible, people come at us from the woodwork. We had like the debate moderators not ask you questions, like whatever the shit was thrown at us, what do we go back to? You would say, I'm the magical Asian man wants to give everybody $1,000 a month, but it was $1,000 a month, right? Like, and it was, this is our why. And it's so important in politics. It's like, I'm not running to deal with the nonsense. I'm, this is the message. And we were able to lean on that often, almost daily. Um, I don't know if the Dems have that simply articulated. I could be wrong. Like Trump's was make America great again. Um, and that sounds gimmicky, but it worked. Um, I think Joe's I message, to your point, is ready to lead, you know, or fit to lead. Like, like that. Yes. That would be like the the message. And then, in contrast, they they're saying Trump is unfit to lead, which right. No. That's and that's not a bad one. Ready day one. Like, let's like fix this mess. Like, there's a million ways they can go, and they're kind of doing it. Um, well, you know, well, the way they frame it, Zach, which you, it sounds like you don't love, is battle for the soul of the country. Yeah, which I don't love. Because um, if we win, we got to hit moderates and um, independents and Republicans, right? That's how you win. Um, I don't know. I'm reading that Righteous I, Mind book by Jonathan Haidt. Who I'm trying to, I want to get on the podcast. It's just how Democrats and Republicans talk differently because of who they are, like biologically. It's fascinating. Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry. I was very much influenced by that book. We're, yeah. we're definitely going to get John on here. I'll I'll invite him today. <laughs> Right. <laughs> how, have I, how have I missed this? Jonathan's going on. Um, Sweet. <laughs> yeah. So um, I've never loved the battle for the soul of the country uh, frame. Yeah. But, it, you know, you have to say, I mean, like he was running on that in the primaries. and It worked, uh, yeah. And, like restore and, the soul of the nation. And he's a good guy for that. I mean, I, I like I like the Biden team because they stick to their guns and they know what they're doing. They don't get caught up in the weeds and the daily nonsense. So, um and uh, there's other campaigns but we'll not we won't mention but they got caught up caught up in that all the time and most of the time they end up dropping out you end up getting crushed when you do that um so we go on all day on our opinions on political strategy um you know i'm i'm optimistic on 2020 uh with the big unknown being the process itself um but yeah. I, I think that you know if we keep on working and grinding uh there's cause for optimism in november and beyond and boy knows, Lord knows we need it, you know.
This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. <laughs> That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Um... So this is less optimistic, but it was really touching. Um, so you got to speak to the family of Jacob Blake, who was the um, the black man shot by the, a cop in um, Kenosha, Wisconsin. He was shot seven times in the back um, on video. And it's it's a horrifying video. And so you got to, and to be clear, we stand with that. We stand with Jacob's family. And you got to speak with Jacob's father, I believe, right? And his uncle. Did you... Um, and we talked about it on CNN a bit, but tell us more about that conversation and what you, what you lived. Oh my gosh, what a, what a moment! Yeah, they reached out, uh, and I was uh, touched that they wanted to hear from me. So I said, of course, yeah. like you know, I'll call them as soon as possible. Talked to his father and uncle. Uh, his father was um, anguished, um, but he he also said it was really happy and joyous to be able to touch his son like just physically touch him in the hospital like hold his hand uh he did tell me that that jacob blake jr's first words to him were uh daddy why did they shoot me so many times uh and he cried and so uh, imagine being a father and having your son uh cry to you in the hospital in that way and his son his son remembered being shot five times and not the sixth and the seventh i imagine because he lost consciousness uh, so that, that was the, the story. Uh, his father was clearly very upset. I have to say that, uh, no, like, like periodically, like, I don't see that much of the stuff I, I, I get on social media and whatnot, but there are all mm-hmm. these folks being like, Jacob Blake did this, Jacob Blake did that. And it's like, are you shitting me? It's like, did you see what happened? <laughs> or like, just in the sense that like, you would have to have done something insane uh, you know, for anyone to, to think that, like, you know, you're, you're being like having lethal force directed at you would make sense, yes. much less getting shot seven times in the back as you're trying to reach into the car that your kids are inside. I mean, like the, the whole thing, um, the, the fact that folks and so the message that Jacob Blake uh, senior had was just tell everyone my son's a human being. And uh, like as a human being who saw what happened to uh to another human being it's reprehensible and awful and the the fact that his father was anguished over the fact that you know we saw his son paralyzed on video uh and the prognosis is that uh, he may never walk again 
uh, yeah, it was heart wrenching. Um, I never expected to to have that conversation and then uh, essentially um, be given a charge saying that like, look, if you want to share this conversation with others, like, you know, we think that would be uh, something that we'd be very open to or or positive about. And then I said, well, if you want me to share this story, I'd be glad to, I'd feel uh, honored to. And what a, so it's so heartbreaking. And so I'm a, um, I grew up listening to Mike and Mike on, in the morning on ESPN. Um, and I was always a huge, I like Golick, but Mike Greenberg is the one I was a big fan of. And he said something on his own show the other day about this. He was talking about the NBA protests um, after Jacob was, was shot. And um, what he said was that the imperfection of the messenger does not mean you ignore the message. And that's where I think we get lost, where like anywhere from like, Jacob Blake had a criminal record to like the shut up and dribble BS that they give professional athletes. Like if you're and his point, and I believe this so strongly, if you're focused on their imperfections or what's wrong with them or why they're not perfect or the mistakes they've made in their life and missing the bigger point, the fact that we just canceled the freaking NBA basketball season because of this, you're missing like you're, you're so off. You're part of the problem. Um, and it's, so frustrating when something tragic happens you're like oh but he wasn't a saint like who the hell's a saint who the hell can stand up there and be like oh i was i was perfect never just you know like does it just because even if you're a criminal you don't deserve to be shot in the back seven times damn it what is wrong i'm sorry i'm getting all but what is wrong with us where that that is a rational discussion point well i i think zach and this actually comes up in the righteous mind to uh, an extent that if something terrible happens to a human being in front of your eyes, uh, there is a human impulse to say, well, maybe I can find some explanation for this. That's not just that this was a terrible injustice. Interesting. Uh, yeah. And and so people people grope for that. Um, it's not right, you know, in, the, in this case. And I, to me, it's like you look at it on the face and say this was um, brutally inhuman. But that that is just an impulse that folks naturally have your point yeah it's like cognitive dissonance in some way in an odd way um and this is so something i think is really important to bring up and i want to be clear before i bring it up like we are we've been supportive of black lives matter and the protests at humanity forward as people individually as professionals um but i want to talk about what the republicans are doing with these protests so right now the protests are at times generally peaceful but at times violent um there is looting there is i mean People are, have died on the streets during these protests. I, I, I would I would say that there there's a massive distinction between protests and looting. You know yes, what I mean? Like well, like when I think protests, I, I think of folks who are marching and speaking and demonstrating. Uh, and then there's a whole another segment of behavior of uh, looting, destruction, rioting, um, yeah. violence. Like I, I see you, those as distinct. Do you think CNN or the mainstream media sees those as distinct yeah i i think that most media organizations are trying to figure out how to distinguish really uh where there are protests happening all over the country in various ways that you don't see or hear anything about because they were peaceful and folks just demonstrated and you know showed up uh and 
that to me describes the vast, vast majority of the behaviors around the country and what we're seeing. And then you have some bad act, actions and actors, um, some driven by passion that's connected to the protests, some just because, you know, that they've, they've been looking for uh, an excuse or catalyst to, to engage in various behaviors. Uh, and and then you see people on the other side, like in, engaging in something similar where you think, OK, well, there's this protest. Let me go counter protest. So you end up with outliers, often people who don't live in the actual community. Like if yeah, you look at the, 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 the. Yeah. So so that to me is another distinction we should draw is that if there are folks in Kenosha who show up, many of whom might actually even know like someone who, who's been personally uh, affected by this like that's a very very different picture than folks who are from another part of the country who drive in and then participate uh and often have agendas where like if, if they can uh cause trouble then that's uh frankly like a big part of the reason they're there uh and and so that that's like a very very big distinction and the the danger is that people just try and uh conflate these different people these different activities uh these different types of actions uh, together. And, and that's actually, to me, what the Republicans have been doing is just trying to put everything with a broad brush, paint everything with mm-hmm. a broad brush and say, look, you know, anarchist mob or, or whatnot. And and, uh, and then you look at it and say, wait a minute, like there are a lot of people who are just showing up because they think uh, what happened to Jacob Blake or George Floyd is wrong and mm-hmm. uh, we, need to, we need to address and change it. I mean, like, which in many ways you're uh glad for because can you imagine a country where you see people's lives get extinguished and everyone just shrugs and like stays home just, and just watches yeah. another video yeah i mean like like that would be a terrible uh reaction like the protests are in in many ways like a more human empathetic reaction right. uh and then just trying to paint it with a broad brush and saying, well, and then also there are these bad actors like doing the or not paint it, just say that like that everyone's a mob um, like that. That just feeds some of the abstract discussion around this stuff that I just don't think is productive or helpful. You know, if you, you, you have to try and suss out different actors, different groups, different motivations, different geographies. Um, uh, and it's one reason why I think that the confusion around this is uh, is corrosive. Yeah. And you have a lot of people not paying as much attention to them as, as you do, or I do, or a lot of us do. To me, it's this vicious cycle. That's really frustrating to me to watch where you've got a criminal justice system where frankly, black Americans are treated differently than white Americans so much so that they're occasionally being shot while unarmed. Right. And that people are so mad at this, that they're rising up and they're protesting. Right. And then you have the people in power in charge of the system are inciting that violence. They're like, go get them, law and order, come revolt, like, or you know, shitting on it or whatever it is. And then because of that, you get more animosity, more anger, more protests, more and more. And then what that party in power is doing is using that to scare people who are not protesting or their average voter who's not an activist, not getting involved with these protests, use that to scare them and possibly stay in power. You know what I'm saying? This like vicious, like the more the protests happen, the more the right's using it against the left. And I don't know what to do and solve on that, how to solve that. Well, the, the main thing is to try and distinguish again between demonstrations and protests and uh, violence yeah. uh, and, and worse. Um, but Van Jones put it in a way that I thought was really apt. He said, look, 
Um, there, there are three forms of uh, criminality that we have to try and address. Number one is excesses on the part of police, where you say, look, like th this stuff was uh, not why you put an officer, uh, uh, you know, in uh, position to serve and protect. Uh, so that's category number one is police excesses. Uh, number two is demonstrations that lead to riots and violence, uh, which is not the vast majority of them, but you know that there is some proportion. Yep. And then number three is uh, vigilantism and folks coming in uh, trying to pick fights or, or worse. Uh, and so if if you're is, yeah, yeah if you're trying to to install a sense of uh, of order uh, and peace you have to try and address all three uh yeah. and the the f folks on the the right seem very concerned with number two but not concerned with one or three uh and that is really the problem is that if you were a reasonable leader you would look up and say okay like none of these things is acceptable uh we mm -hmm. can't have police just shooting unarmed civilians in the back uh in, in front of all of us we can't have people rioting and looting and, and destroying. Uh, and we can't have vigilantes crossing state lines uh, and uh, engaging in violent behaviors. Like none of these things is is right or good or productive or helpful or leading us anyplace positive. Right. That That's like a reasonable approach to it all. But you can't just home in on one and say this one is this, the sole problem um, because, you know, they, they each require different approaches. One of the things... I always like working with you on is do you understand nuance better than most people or how things are complicated or um, understand the gray? Because I think a lot of our political parties, we go right or left or like right or wrong, black or white. Um, and the reality is it's always more complicated. Um, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit, but not too much. You, um, I want to, I always like to take one of your tweets from last time we recorded and that was popular. And you said something about Chadwick, um, Bozeman, who we mentioned at the top of the episode, said, "You said your quote was, you think someone like Chadwick is on top of the world and they're actually f fighting for their life in private. Everyone is human. To me, this is exactly what we're talking about. Like, it's not black or white. It's not superstar or human being. It's he's a superstar who's also a human being, right? Like, there's there's nuance there. What did you mean when you tweeted that? I know that it's like you've talked a lot about mental health. I know that's deeper. What did you mean? Well, it, it's tough because... If you're in the public eye, um, and I've been a public figure now for a relatively brief period of time, yeah. <laughs> you know, where, where there's like a, Chadwick, but yeah, yeah, um, uh, and there, there's a sense that you are not human in the like that you are rich or you're famous or you know your life is great, um, right. you don't have human concerns, problems, struggles, uh, and you do. And Chadwick, when I first saw the headline that he'd passed, like you know, I was like, that can't be right because, mm -hmm. like, I, I feel like I saw him just uh, you know a number of months ago in this film or that film, and I'd heard absolutely nothing about him being ill, and he's relatively young and, and uh, healthy and the rest of it, um, and it wasn't like a car accident or something like that. Like it was literally disbelief. Yep. Um, but one of the things that I've learned is that the human condition is universal. That uh, even if you said to young Andrew Yang, it's like, hey, in the future, you'll run for president and uh, like uh, all these things would happen, uh, then I would have been like, wow, like, you know, my, my <laughs> life must be 
be uh, incredible and, and you know and then and my life is incredible in many respects uh that you know i get to do uh do positive things and, and try and right. help people uh but at the end of the day you know it's still um like did i make breakfast for the kids like you know like are the kids in uh on track to um to ha- learn anything today that's not total crap um you know <laughs> yeah, is, is is my wife uh my happy are we having some quality time together uh am i myself mentally healthy or uh physically right. healthy or the rest of it like all of the things that apply to to just being alive still very much apply no matter who you are mm-hmm. uh and right now one of the the dangers we have that you you related just a moment ago was people are just so eager to throw rocks at each other, you know? And it's like, if, if there is like someone who makes a social media post, then there are folks who just clam around and be like, Oh, that was wrong and sensitive. You missed this. Like, you know, you're not using your, uh, it's like, meanwhile, it's like the human being on the other end is just like, I was, I was just making an observation. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like we just have to try and remember that we're all, uh, we're all still people at the other side of it. Um, one of the things that I take pride in is that I think folks had a sense, even as I was running for president, that I was a fairly normal guy, normal human. Um, and I've now met a number of people who are public figures. And the best of them are still, you know, themselves or still like a, a relatively... Um, not normal because they can you know most of them know that they're not normal or whatever but you know like that they're, they're they're not assholes they're not like to- total automatons um and a lot of them are very sensitive like a lot of them yeah you know they they really take stuff to heart in a way you're like oh snap because I, I think that's one of the things that's going on too is that you think if there's some celebrity it's like I'm, I'm gonna shit talk them on social media it's like they're not gonna care like care, a yeah. shocking number of them actually if they saw it it would bother them <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? like, like, like they'll see it and be like oh like that you know and, people and really so, think that you can't it's human nature you know yeah so so i think chadwick's uh passing like it's just a reminder it's like man people are going through things you have no idea like i never would have guessed that chadwick boseman was struggling on that level uh and you know like we just found out the rock and his family had covid and the other end of it it's like you know you never think these things um so just try and have some uh, give people the benefit of the doubt just uh, imagine that maybe they're going through some things maybe they're having a bad day uh and you know if they say something you disagree with like i hope we get to a point where people can just shrug it off and be like well you know like that wasn't my cup of tea but um uh you know it's like who knows what that what's going on on the other end this stuff is actually biblical man i talk about you know he with no sin cast the first stone or you know you're pointing out the speck in my eye without looking at the stake in yours i'm paraphrasing but um i i agree man and one of the reasons i am very, very supportive of Joe Biden this cycle is because, I, and I think a lot of Republicans may have felt this. Like I thought Donald, yes, divisive, but I thought he was going to be like rise to the occasion as the like it's all about me, but I can be the the uniting leader as president. And he's been the exact opposite the entire time. And maybe I should have read that, and maybe a bunch of others. But to me, like whether you love Joe's policy or even love the guy, like he's not going to rip us apart the way that's happening right now. And we need to come together because it doesn't, the virus doesn't care if you're left or right. It doesn't matter if Republican, Democrat, doesn't care about your skin color. It's killing everybody. Um, 
And I'm sick of being in my studio apartment. I'm sick of that. I'd like to get out. <laughs> um, so that's why I, I think you'd, you'd get some the right type of leadership, ignoring policy and political party, if you put a Biden administration in there. Well, we have to help people dig out. And like it or not, the government, in my mind, has to take a major, major leadership role to, in yeah. that. And I just do not see that happening under Trump. Uh, will that necessarily happen under Joe and Kamala? I certainly hope so. At least we give ourselves a chance. One of the things that we're going to be talking about a lot on Yang Speaks over the next number of weeks is trying to fix the machine of government, uh, because yeah. that that's one of my new areas of attention and focus, in part because, uh, and I, I said this recently, I said, like, you know, fixing the machine is as or more important than who's in the cockpit. Like, yeah, you get the right person in leadership and the government just can't get anything done, then nothing will get done. And then we'll just continue to get angry at each other and fed up and then be like, oh, and I, I think this is one reason why Trump was elected and it's legitimate is that people are just looking up being like, man, like this is not working for me. Like DC is not working for me. Uh, it has not been working for you for quite some time. No. And and that that is to me a very, very legitimate point of view. Uh, and that has to be something that we dig deep and try and address. Um, so that that's where... I believe the opportunity and challenge meet um, where it's going to be hard. Like I think Joe yeah. and Kamala are going to win. Um, and then in many ways, the harder challenge is going to be whether What's they can yeah. get our government to, to, to meet the challenge. The, you want the government to be somewhat of a cruise ship in the sense that it doesn't matter who's driving it, generally speaking, um, that, it can still get from point A to point B. It can still float. Like people who pay, like still are satisfied. Like that's what you and like Fortune 500 companies who have worked at a big, a, a big one. I worked at UBS and through Suit Up, interacted with a lot of them. They're all like that. It doesn't matter who you put. And some of these big companies have been around forever. It doesn't matter in many ways who you put at the top because they've built this mode around their business and it's just exists. And I hated that when I worked there, but. I'd ra so much rather have the cruise ship where no one wants to change anything and it's just running than the Titanic where it's actively sinking and because of bad leadership and no one knows what's going on. Half the people don't think it's sinking. God, it's a disaster. Um, but we have to get to cruise ship, I think, if we're going to keep that analogy. I don't know. <laughs> I know. I, I get it. Uh, yeah. So fixing the machinery yeah. is going to be our new jam. And one person who really fix the machinery in his own company is our guest on Yang Speaks this week, uh, the co-founder and CEO of Gravity Payments, Dan Price. And if you're a long-standing member of the Yang Gang, then you know Dan Price's story. But Dan Price made national headlines for having a minimum salary at his company of $70,000 a year. He said, look, if you work for me, then you should make at mm -hmm. least this much. And people around the country were shocked. He became this massive cause uh, celeb. And there are folks on the right, I think it was Rush Limbaugh, who were like, I can't wait to see the company fail. Uh, and, and then if they checked in, they'd see that the company grew and, and became very prosperous. I believe it tripled in size or more. Uh, so Dan and I met at a rally in Seattle uh, when I was running for president. Um, he is one of the pioneers and champions of a more advanced form of capitalism. Uh, it's like a version of human-centered capitalism. I loved talking to Dan. What a visionary, what a human, uh, like a human beacon of light and hope. 
Uh, and the, the great thing about him is that, you know, there can be many, many more like him um, if we just put ourselves in position to reward that kind of leadership. Um, so really excited to share my conversation with one of the originals of human-centered capitalism, CEO of Gravity Payments, Dan Price. And now let's do something that I am super pumped about. I'm doing something fun uh, right So, So anyone who is a big fan of Yang Speaks may have heard these ads for these electric scooters, Unagi, that I cruise around on on most days. Uh, they are game changers. They are so fun. They're environmentally friendly. They're electric. In a time of mm-hmm. COVID, you can scoot around on these things. And, uh, you know, like you're, you're on your own. You can just breathe uh, the... Open you don't air. have to wear a mask. You're moving so fast away from people. It's great. And you're not going <laughs> to believe this, but we are now going to give away an Unagi scooter to someone who follows Ooh. me and Zach Grauman on Instagram and tag three people in comments. That's like a $1,000 electric scooter. It's like the iPhone or Tesla of scooters. One of them's going away for free. We're going to do this multiple weeks, but this first week, Instagram follow at Andrew Yang and at Zach Grauman and tag three people in the comments. Then you might end up cruising around on the scooter. We can just swap photos uh, and uh, enjoy the scooter madness together. This is going to be awesome. So we're going to post this on Instagram. Follow us both and tag three friends. And we're going to fill up this out. we got a great digital team. They'll find you. Um, winner gets a free scooter. And they're sick. So um, Instagram, at Andrew Yang and at Zach Grauman, tag three friends. We made some hurdles because, one, we would like to grow our Instagram platforms, let's be real. But two, <laughs> we think a lot of you will want it. So we wanted to, the true believers and the people who really wanted to put their name in this thing. So check it out. Unagi giveaway. Um, and now enjoy an episode with Dan Price. All right. Fantastic. I am thrilled to welcome to Yang Speaks, one of the leaders of the future economy, uh, a human CEO who's made national news for treating employees like human beings. (laughs) Imagine that, right? The novelty. (laughs) The CEO of Gravity Payments, Mr. Dan Price. Dan, welcome to Yang Speaks. Andrew, it is such an honor to be on Yang Speaks. I'm really um, happy and excited for all the hard work that your team continues to do. And I just appreciate the opportunity to to talk to you. Are you kidding? I appreciate you, Dan. And you and I met in Seattle on the trail. That rally was one of the first big rallies we had. Like an eagle came overhead and... uh, Join the Yang Gang. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, there was literally a bald eagle circling over Andrew's head. Yes, thank you, bald eagle, for blessing the rally. (laughs) Uh, Well, that rally was awesome. You spoke. uh, It was relatively early in the campaign, and I, I was grateful to you and everyone who saw the campaign early on. And in your case, it makes sense because of what you stand for. I mean, you'd made all these incredible... Uh, decisions well before the campaign came about. But what was your history with universal basic income? And when did you first notice the Andrew Yang campaign? 
You know, um, early, early on when you started campaigning, when you went on um, Joe Rogan and uh, Sam uh, Harris's show and a few others, a lot of people reached out to me and they were like, hey, this guy's saying basically the same stuff that you're saying, like, you need to check him out because he's running for president. And obviously, I remember, you know, you started running for president basically before anybody else that ended up being in the primary. And so people were just telling me about this guy that was saying a lot of the same things. But to be honest, I was not super educated about universal basic income. So your campaign helped me tremendously. And I was I was kind of always, like you say, kind of aligned with it. But I didn't really understand the X's and O's until you came around. Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. And it makes me happy to hear that I, I might have uh, helped um, you realize that UBI is very aligned to your vision for the way the economy should operate. Um, and I, I'd love to talk about your background, too, because there are a lot of folks. Um, are you a, you a parent, uh, Dan? No, I hope to be one day, but not yet. Well, I'm sure you will. I mean, if you hope to be like, you know, yeah. you can make that happen. Uh, <laughs> but but I, I was going to raise the fact that um, you are homeschooled in Idaho, I believe. And I feel like there are mm-hmm. so many parents around the country that are homeschooling their kids uh, right now, either voluntarily or involuntarily, because there, there are a lot of schools that have um, shut down. So I'd love to ask you about your oper- your experience growing up. Well, I was the fourth of six kids, and I was raised in rural Idaho, kind of like out between like farms and just like barren land. I, my next door neighbor was a dump uh, in Pickle Butte, Idaho. And, um, you know, so it was a very unusual uh, upbringing. I had uh, three hours of Rush Limbaugh every day was part of the homeschooling, and then also two to three hours of Bible study every day. So it was, it was pretty rigorous. Um, and uh, being the fourth of six kids where neither one of my parents graduated from, from college, you know, they had, a, they had their hands full. And it, and it was tough. So we were kind of largely self-schooled. And so I would say that probably, you know, in some ways, it's not necessarily the example that we need right now. But um, I do think it How was- can I get my kid to grow up like Dad Price? <laughs> I was thinking, I need to find a dump. <laughs> Got to get that Rush Limbaugh programming on. I mean, I will say, I do think there's a point there, which is you kind of have to use the reality that you have as opposed to the reality you want. So none of us, of course, want this pandemic. None of us want, uh, you know, our, our school kids to be disrupted and all those things. But we can teach our kids through this opportunity. We can teach them about UBI, about human dignity, about basic needs, all these things right now that maybe kind of would get shortchanged a little bit if schools were open and we didn't have this big issue to deal with. Well, I certainly hope that we end up teaching our kids something different uh, during this time. So when was the first time you showed up to an actual school and what, what was that experience like? Well, I was in seventh grade, and I remember a a kid telling me that I was wearing the wrong shoes, um, and that's why the other kids were making fun of me. So I saved up a bunch of money to to get the shoes, and fortunately, Payless had a two-for-one shoe sale, and I showed up with my shoes that looked like the other kids' shoes. And they explained to me that because their shoes said Vans and my said Payless, it still didn't work. So it was it was tough, you know. It was it was difficult figuring out how to get socialized, how to like. Um, I mean, I think actually there's so much conformity in our society today that's pre-programmed in at a young age, and it was really jarring for me to all of a sudden have to know all those lessons that I had no opportunity to learn. Well, it's one reason why I, I want to delve into your background because you're such a singular CEO. And a lot of the practices you've adopted at your company are unconventional. They've, they've proven to be hugely successful. And so uh, 
you're right about the conformity. And so, you know, how does the nonconformist entrepreneur uh, develop? Um, so in your case, you showed up seventh grade. You were like, whoa, these kids have been hanging out with each other an awful lot while I've been at home. Uh, and so um, what was that process like through junior high and high school? Did you feel at some point you were like, okay, now I get people. <laughs> like, how long does it take to get people? <laughs> Well, I, I had a bit of a rocky process because I went from being socially awkward to starting a rock band with two of my best friends in junior high. And our rock band was successful. We were played on very tiny radio stations nationwide. We did little mini regional tours and everything. So I went from being socially awkward to being on stage. And that, that was a really like jarring process. And honestly, I had to go through just a lot of pain and turmoil and understanding that the way I was coming across was a little bit different than how people were perceiving me. Um, and I think if you ask some people that know me really well, they might say I'm still trying to figure that out today. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you get there. You're like, I've got the wrong shoes. These kids seem to be talking in a way that uh, I don't get. Um, I'm going to start a rock band. And so what, what was your band um, first? Like, were you the front kid like the the singer guitarist or what yeah. were you i was the least talented musician by a mile in the band but my dad you know like i said he didn't have a college degree but he he worked his way up in a medium-sized company actually about the same size that gravity is today and he was always trying to teach himself about business and he was such a great student in terms of like being self-taught and so he let me kind of ride along with him as a kid so i learned the seven habits of highly effective people when i was maybe eight or nine years old wow and and i applied a lot of that stuff into the band and so i think the band appreciated me more kind of from a business standpoint than a than a musical standpoint which broke my heart of course you were um, like half drummer half manager <laughs> yeah exactly and it was weird because i could kind of get along with adults really well from like socializing with my parents but like the kid thing i couldn't figure out and that was always a bit of a disconnect for me but then when my band broke up my junior year of high school it was a really natural transition to me to actually start a business uh, or start building a business as a high school kid because it allowed me to go work with really the people that I think about every day, which are the, all the small business owners out there that are kind of like, yeah, zany and off the wall, but they do so many amazing things for us in our society. I love small business owners so much. I, I ran a small business myself for a number of years, and it's where I kind of came of age uh, as a uh, an adult. Um, so you started a business in high school then? That That was a, what kind of business was that? It's the same business I have today. I officially launched it my freshman year of college, um, but I started building it. So basically, you know, what we do for those of you that don't know out there in the audience is credit card processing. So it's kind of boring, but all these small businesses have to pay a ton of money just to get paid on a credit card, which of course is totally unfair. And so my original business was just kind of like calling all the credit card companies and kind of convincing them, trying to persuade them to give all of these business owners that I knew a better rate. But I took the money I made from that business and started building my own product so I wouldn't be reliant on those huge monopoly companies. So you started that in high school. You went to college in Seattle, right, which is where you are now. And yeah. then you were running the business uh, the whole time and growing it. Um, your brother worked alongside you on that business, right? You had a partner? Yeah, he, he helped me start it, uh, or we started it together, I should say. It was really kind of his idea to, to partner up together and, and do it together, yeah. 
So I'm going to guess you were not the most diligent college student. Just a guess. <laughs> I had a I had a copy and paste letter in college that I would send my professors and I would say, hey, I'm on I'm on the dean's list. I've been on the dean's list every quarter, but my attendance record is about 40%. Is that okay with you or not? And if they said no, I'd say no problem. I'll just take the class from another professor. <laughs> okay, so you were attendance light. <laughs> you managed to cram for the tests, and then yes. the whole time you were building the business. So when was it clear to you that uh, that the business was going to be what you did? It might have been clear for the whole time, um, where you knew that it wasn't like at the end of college, you were like, oh, time to polish a resume and like get out there and apply for a job. It sounds like that was never in the cards for you. Is that right? No, because I grew up thinking I'd be a pro- professional musician. And not just thinking, but kind of knowing like that was my destiny. And then once I found in the band that I love dealing with all the small business owners, I kind of actually found that even though I love music so much, my talent was more in that. And so I just wanted to work with all those small business owners my whole life. Now, when I actually figured out that that could be sustainable financially, maybe is a, a slightly different question. But early on, even in high school, I was like, I would love to just do everything I can Because in my mind, if I spent my entire life just trying to help out small businesses, that would be pretty much the best way I could spend it. I get it, man. I love small business owners so much. I had this experience. I was an unhappy lawyer. And then I went in to uh, visit with the CEO of a small company. um, And I said to myself, I want to be that guy. Like, however the heck you become the head of a small business. Because he had like this... Uh, you know, his office and the set of employees and he was responsible for them and he uh, felt like uh, like what I wanted to become. And so you think to yourself, like, how the heck do I become that person? I have this deep, deep uh, love for small business owners because I understand what it means to just get up and then open the diner every day and then have mm-hmm. everyone... Um, come to you for with their problems and have to make decisions on shifts or compensation. And so when I became the head of a company myself, well, I, I so I don't know how much you know about this, but like I, I co-founded a, a dot com that crashed and burned in my mid twenties. Mm-hmm. Then I worked at a wireless software company, and then a healthcare software company, and then I became the head of an education company. And when I finally became CEO of this company, I was thirty or thirty one. So much older than you are now. Much, I mean, you're much older than you were when you started. I mean, you're yeah. older than this now. Yeah. Uh, and, and it it became such like this pure experience where you felt like you're the head of a family because mm. there are dozens, even hundreds of people that count on you to make the right decisions about the business, but also about them, their responsibilities, whether they get a promotion or a raise, whether team's not working and you have to make a change, like all these things, like you're making these decisions every day. And I just grew up like, you know, I feel like these small businesses um, put uh, put on their people like this, particularly the leaders like you are, this very, very pure set of responsibilities, uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's a beautiful process that really grows you in particular ways. Yeah, it's. I like the way you're saying it. Like the rubber really meets the road when you're doing it. What What was it that attracted you when you met that first like small business owner that made you say you wanted to do that? He just seemed like he was doing his own thing and making his own decisions. And there wasn't like this 
some corporate headquarters that he was answering to that he had to check in with. <laughs> it was it was just like he, you know, and and that the people around him felt like they were going to either succeed or fail based upon what he uh, decided, and they were totally comfortable with that. <laughs> yeah. it, was like, it was like that kind of feeling. Like, wow. He's like, he was like, you can get things done. Yeah, he was like the captain of a ship and <laughs> just exuded uh, like a, a sense of quiet confidence. Just like yeah. you, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> like, Very few people have called me quiet, but I'll take that as a huge compliment. Or, or just like, <laughs> like you, you kind of get this vibe from a lot of small business owners, you know, be, because you have to make all these decisions every day. You have to evaluate people. You have to interview people and be like, you're hired. You're not hired. Like you, you just have to make so many decisions that you do develop a certain decision making confidence. And, and small businesses are so on the rope right now. And I, I wanted to ask you about this a little bit because, you know, in, in some of the reading and writing that I've been doing, like we found that there's been just a massive transfer of, of revenue, of commerce, of wealth. You know, you have some of these companies like Amazon um, and Square and and Apple and all these huge behemoth companies. Apple, the companies. $2 trillion company. Yeah, and yet small businesses, our data shows that small businesses are down on average about 20 plus percent and 30% have permanently closed at this point and that's growing. And what I worry about, and I wanna know what you think about this, is how do we put that genie back in the bottle because the trend just seems really hard right now. You need to dramatically rebalance the economy if you're going to give small businesses a chance to reopen or open a new uh, so you would need something like universal basic income, honestly, to have a shot because you have Apple breaking two trillion. You have Amazon just sucking so many businesses dry at this point. And it angers me, Dan, when you see Congress bring the CEOs in to testify and they, they still are kind of pretending that they're like these scrappy little companies and be like, oh, I remember when I got started and it was pretty dicey there. <laughs> It's like, come on, you're worth a trillion dollars now. Like at, at this point, uh, your business has left orbit and you're like defying the laws of business physics. Uh, you know, yeah. like Tim O'Reilly called it super money. <laughs> where, yeah. where how can you compete with a company that is worth a trillion dollars and doesn't even need to make money like in any given period? You know, like if there's anything interesting coming up, they're like, oh, maybe I'll buy that for a billion dollars worth of stock. And uh, and then they act like, oh, we could be jeopardized at any moment. Like all consumers could just turn away from us. Like it, it's very tenuous. Please don't uh, actually investigate our anti-competitive behaviors. So, so like the, the whole thing is infuriating because, uh, because small businesses are getting the oxygen sucked out of their... Um, their rooms and look and they're just gasping for air and, and they can't breathe and you're seeing it because you have a dashboard into the real life operations of thousands of small businesses um so they're gasping for air and dying and then amazon is like oh i guess we're going to turn this abandoned mall into a fulfillment warehouse and fill it with robots and the rest of it i mean like all of the uh, the understandings that people have about the way businesses operate have changed because of these big tech companies, unprecedented level of power in particular. The the shift has been heartbreaking for me because, you know, my clients, I've known them, my our first thousand clients, I knew over half on a first name basis, have access to like each other's cell phones and everything. 
and hearing from you know some of these people that have just spent their whole life and all their life savings and risked so much just kind of feel like they're in like this kind of zombie status now because of that oxygen that you talked about. Obviously, there's demand side, which UBI um, addresses really, really well. But there's also this other side, which is like in the bailout, you know, you had Warren Buffett going out there and saying, oh, I took $100 billion just because they offered it to me for free. So why wouldn't I do it? And then you have these Main Street small businesses that, yeah, then maybe they got the PPP, but that's run out at this point. And so they don't really have that same assistance, that same attention from the people in power. And the big companies are just ruthless in able to in being able to use that advantage to permanently shift market share in their direction. Now, I suggested something even more targeted where I said we should be getting universal basic income that we, we can only use at locally owned businesses. Yeah. And then you could create uh, kind of these mini economies. And I feel like many Americans would love just to be able to plow money into like the local restaurant or bar tutoring service or uh, dog walker or what have you because they know they know a lot of those people oftentimes um, but then when push comes to shove if you yourself don't have disposable income and, and there's another thing that makes me mad Dan it's like I'm all for the like shop small campaigns and the rest of it but pretending that some kind of little voluntary market tweak like oh if we all just try a little bit harder to support those small businesses then like the 20 billion dollar black hole to Amazon every year will reverse itself. It's like, no, it's not the way this shit works at all. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm all for it. Like, you know, like we should be trying to support these small business owners, but we shouldn't pretend like that's going to do the trick um, yeah. when, when you're talking about historic shifts at this level. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's just so much incentive to kind of join the other side. You know, I even in my shoes, um, you know, I get emails on the regular from like investment bankers and, you know, someone wants to freaking make you a deal you can't refuse, Dan, because they'd be like, hey, Dan, you know, what would be great. Just take that check, get gobbled up into the mothership Borg and like, uh, you know, join us. I'm sure your 70K minimum salary will will uh, be completely accepted by the new parent company. <laughs> I'm sure Those they'll adopt it. Those jobs will get outsourced. Those jobs will get automated, outsourced. And the, the experience of the small business client that we're like in the streets fighting for every day will get worse. They won't have somebody like us out there, you know, doing everything we can to set up them up with contactless payments, with mobile payments, pay from your car. All these things that we're doing for all these industries kind of go away. But I think what concerns me the most, I mean, look, everything that you've been saying that would happen has already happened. And I recognize that this is more of like a here and now versus when you first started saying it, it was somewhat in the future. But like, I worry about the next shoe that's going to drop is just this situation where there's so much monopoly type behavior, there's so much bait and switch type behavior. And we all kind of go around in life getting nickeled and dimed by these huge companies where we have no ability to hold them accountable. And anybody like me that comes along and says, I want to be part of the other team, they say, hey, you can we can take all that stress away from you and give you more money than you ever know what to do with. And you can just have a smile ear to ear every day. You just got to sell out and join this system. I'm so glad you're describing this, Dan, because it's true for you. It's true for so many. I'm going to tell a story that broke my heart where there's this uh, person who owned uh, seven grocery stores in New Jersey, family business, owned, operated, just, you know, like, and when Amazon bought Whole Foods, 
he said, you know what, I'm gonna take all the profits from my grocery stores and just start buying Amazon stock because I give up. Like there is I'm not going to be me competing with the, these guys over time. I'm just going to, to accept that the grocery stores of the future are gonna be owned by the trillion dollar company that I cannot compete with. It used to be I invested in my stores, it used to be I invested in my people, it used to be maybe I even bought a new grocery store, consolidated, or opened something. He's like, now, like not, none of that. Uh, and, and that's a microcosm of what you uh, are being subject to, where mm -hmm. everything in American life now revolves around uh, what's good for the almighty dollar. And, and the almighty dollar looks at your company and says, hmm, I can like bolt you on. You've got a lot of interesting small business clients. I can come in and like I could cut a lot of costs pretty quick <laughs> because Dan sure is being nice to his, his um, employees there. Uh, and, you know, you're a young man in your prime. Like, imagine if I made you like a 76-year-old, you know, and like your Very kids didn't to want to no. inherit the business. Yeah. Um, so so that's what's happening in uh, businesses and industries across the board in so many ways. Uh, the reason why I spent seven years running this entrepreneurship nonprofit is I saw the numbers around declining entrepreneurship around the country, and I thought that's a disaster. And it was a disaster in terms of jobs and opportunities and the economy, but it was also a disaster socially or culturally because I, I had been formed myself like you as the head of this small business. And you, you're allowed to be a human being as the head of a small business. You know? You're allowed to do things that are frankly not economically optimal. Um, just because you feel like it, because you're, you know, you like that person. In your case, you were like, guess what? I'm gonna pay you all 70k. It's like, what? I could have hired you for 40k. Who cares? I'm gonna pay you 70k because I think it's the right thing to do, and I think writ large, um, you know, will we'll benefit from it. But also, I just feel like it, and, <laughs> and I'm like the yeah. Uh, and and there's like this market logic that over uh, overrides everything if you're part of a very large corporation where you're not allowed to do anything that's um, economically irrational and thus human. Yeah. Well, and, and the problem with that is it's creating a level of conformity where everyone's doing the same thing. I mean, if you look at a lot of the decisions that I've make, made and continue to make, they're decisions that I learned through all these various like CEO learning organizations, peer-to-peer -peer learning organizations, and just a lot of business books, you know, everything out there is like there's only one way to do things. I mean, a, a pretty recent example is like when the pandemic hit, we lost 55% of our revenue because our 20,000 small business clients lost 55% of their revenue and our revenue turns out is an exact function of theirs. Yep. And so basically, you know, what we're taught and what you were taught, I'm sure, as well, in a lot of these same circles is you want to do a, a very hard cut layoff early so that you can have a recovery story. You want to cut deeper than you need to. And then the next day you're you're back on the front foot, you're back to hiring, you're back to growth and you protect your balance sheet. You're willing to sacrifice the people that got you here to protect your balance sheet and then turn around and potentially bring new people on board or, or save the company or whatnot. And so we're just taught in situations like this and you see it all over with Hertz and JCPenney and you know, I did like a Twitter thread even of like bankrupt companies that are doing all these layoffs, giving huge bonuses to the CEOs or big companies uh, like one of my competitors, Toast. They just raised $300 million on a multi-billion dollar valuation. And right afterwards, they laid off 50% of their team right after doing that. 
And so we're just kind of taught that this is the only way of doing it. And it's hard, but I think when people make different decisions like we did, we said, we're not going to lay anybody off. We're going to find a way to get through this together. There's actually a lot more benefit there than people realize. It's more viable, and I, I think we're proving that every day. But yet, kind of the orthodoxy, if you just go around talking to people at cocktail parties or reading the books or whatnot, we're just told there's only one way to do it. And it's clearly wrong, so it kind of begs the question, why are we being told that? This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Why let big tech companies see everything you're doing online when you can just use ExpressVPN and then be footloose and fancy free? Plus, you get access to exclusive content by beaming in to another market. What do I mean? Let's say you have Netflix and you missed the show Snowpiercer. By the way, I loved that movie. And you want to watch the TV series, not available in the US on Netflix, but if you beam into the UK or someplace else, then there's Snowpiercer on your Netflix. See how it works? This is a way you can get more from what you're already spending on streamers, plus totally anonymous online, plus you can do it by pushing one button anywhere you are. It's why I love ExpressVPN. It's like a set it and forget it. So be smart. Stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting access to a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com yang. Don't forget to use my link at expressvpn.com yang to get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Well, what I would describe uh, your approach as is old school. Like you can imagine an old school head of a business in the 1970s or even 80s making the decision you're making. But then the logic of shareholder return and uh, capital optimization started running the joint somewhere in the 80s and 90s over the last 30 years. So now you're right that like that there are cert certain orthodox moves that you're meant to make that the stock market will then reward. Um, previously, you might have just said, look, I care about my people. I don't particularly feel like firing people. Uh, I think we can get through this and that people will appreciate the fact that we stood up for them when times were tough. So I'd, I'd love for you to, to go a little bit further back when you first decided to elevate everyone's salary to 70,000, which gained you national fame and accolades, and then some rock throwing from Rush Limbaugh, your old teacher, <laughs> <laughs> saying, I hope this company crashes and burns just to show that there's like, like no socialist success in the blah. You know, I said, I don't mean, that's my Rush Limbaugh imitation. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so you can go back and you took a pay cut personally in order to make this $70,000 uh, minimum sell or you know like salary floor possible yeah well I had been indoctrinated in all the things that you're saying uh, that we both been talking about in terms of kind of the system and how other companies think about things the supremacy of shareholders all those things but it was going against what I was actually seeing with my own eyes and so in 2011, I was really inspired by an employee who was telling me she wasn't making enough and she had to take a second job at McDonald's to afford to be able to work at my company. Yikes. And I'm yeah, and I'm like you're like an you're one of our best employees. Like if you can't afford to live your life, 
what does that say about me? And so in 2011, at the end of the year, we set a goal to average 15% raises in 2012. And then that we thought would decrease the profit. We were looking to rebalance the pie and make it more fair because that's what we thought would happen based on everything that's set out there. But our profit actually went up. So we decided, well, we'll do it one more time only in 2013. And we did it again. We exceeded the goal. Our profit went up. So that was happening every year. And we thought this is the way to run a business. And in 2015, we did a survey across our whole company. And people were generally pretty pleased with how we were structured. But I went on a hike with my friend Valerie, who was in the Army for 11 years. And she's such a hard worker and such an amazing person. And she was explaining to me how a $200 rent increase was throwing her entire life upside down. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. You're one of the best people I know. Like, how is this possible that you're not being compensated fairly? And then I learned something very inconvenient, which was a third of my employees were making less than what Valerie was making at that time. She was making about 40K and our lowest employees were like 30 or 35. And it was just, it was just heartbreaking for me. And I'd seen like the Daniel Kahneman Angus Deaton study about how like, you know, wellness increases with income until it doesn't. And I'd read all these things, but ironically, and I'm not proud of this, it took almost like emotional personal experience where this person that I genuinely like love and care about and, and respect so much was not being taken care of by our economy where I realized I was, I had built a company where I can make decisions and yet I was just following what everyone else was doing, what was hurting her rather than doing what I think any five-year-old would know would be the right thing in that situation. Well, way to channel your inner five-year-old, Dan, because you then became a national hero in some circles, my circles. Uh, when you said, you know what, we're going to make sure that everyone who works for this company gets paid $70,000 minimum, which happens to track with about the income level where money no longer affects happiness because you would now have enough to meet your uh, everyday needs. Yeah. And I would also say that, like, I, I appreciate you saying that. I think, I think ideally we would have a world where I don't get so much credit for doing this. And I, I think I get way too much credit. And it was shocking to me, you know, somebody that grew up in Idaho and like getting on the local Idaho news would be like being a celebrity in my world, like let alone like the New York Times and all these other places um, talking to you. And I it, it caused me to reflect and be like, why is this happening? And I don't think it's happening because I'm such a great person. I think it's just more of Because everyone else is so fucking shitty. <laughs> it, it's, it's an indictment on the system. It, I mean, it, it, it is it, it is funny, but it, it, it's true. It's an indictment on the system that somebody that just does something very logical, like says, hey, all of us built this together. Shouldn't all of us at least be able to enough to live like a normal life? That that is so radical and noteworthy um, is really shocking to me. And I think uh, we should be somewhat ashamed as a society that that's where we're at right now. There are certain organizations where I, I completely think they could have done what you've done like a while ago. So some of these organizations that are now incredibly wealthy and valuable, and oftentimes the leader ends up hoovering up the lion's share of that value in these situations. Uh, I can relate to a lot of your story, Dan, in that, uh, but this is one thing I, I will suggest. 
is that your business it was in a situation where if you invested more in your people then it spurred more growth better oper- like better morale better retention uh more creativity um, I ran an organization that was in a similar boat where if you're a growth company and you invest in your people, then you end up growing more. It's like the, this magical relationship. And and I'm proud to say that, you know, I uh, was following some of your playbook during that time where I would pay people uh, more. Like, there was always like a level where you kind of sensed because, you know, you're the CEO of a small business. like You kind of get it. It's like, I know I can get you for this much. But I don't. I'm going to pay you a little more than that because I think you're going to be just happier, like better, more productive, less stressed out, more content. Like I, I also was always like, whatever I think I can get them for, like I'm going to like go a little bit above that. And it's good for us, right? If we're like engaging with them and they're a little happier, a little less stressed out, then we're happier and less stressed out. <laughs> That's true. I, I'm wired the same way you are, which is like I want the people around me to be happy. Yeah. I want them not to be stressed out about a $200 rent increase. Like, I, you know, like, like I, I think that would just be better for us all. Uh, and, and in my case, too, I did some things where uh, and this is one of the joys of being a small business owner where I was like, you know what, like, we should all go to the beach. I'm going to rent a house. <laughs> it's got to be a big house to accommodate everybody. And then be like, everyone, a bus, us to the beach. Or I want to take everyone skiing or whatever the heck it was. Uh, those were the days. I mean, I um, still miss them. Like, uh, my, my now wife uh, and I were dating during this time and she also was like oh i miss those days because <laughs> like, like that of this and and uh you, you know you're positive you want to look out for people I, I will say i'm sympathetic um to folks who run certain types of operations in other industries where frankly like that relationship might not apply where if like you invest more in your people like maybe you're in like a no growth uh environment (laughs) and you're like kind of managing now that that's i think most businesses are in situations where they would benefit from treating people better higher morale like higher contentment lower turnover like the vast majority of businesses i believe fall in this camp uh and i'm i'm happy to say that uh I think that you and I had similar kinds of experiences as the heads of small companies. I'll say, though, in our industry, if you look at our competitors, they have uh, done massive numbers of layoffs. They've increased the fees that they charge to small businesses in opaque ways that those businesses can't understand or can't see right away, so they can't be held accountable very quickly. And then there are some companies that are doing a lot of great innovation, but those companies are telling their shareholders that they're going to turn around and flip the switch at some point and start to charge those customers a lot more or like start to figure out how to control costs in the ways that you're describing. And I feel like I did get kind of something wrong in terms of my expectations over the past six years. And that is, I thought, you know, with all the hubbub and how, you know, kind of how much attention we were getting, if we came out and proved that this could work, that we would have a lot of people following suit. And we have had, you know, dozens of companies follow suit and maybe some, some others in big ways. But like, generally, the problem's gotten worse. And just if I can get up on my soapbox for two minutes and highlight some of the success we've had, I mean, we've tripled as a company in the past five and a half years. We have 10x the number of babies being born at the company per year. Like we've had 50 or 60 babies born. I I love how you have that as a measurement. It's like people are feeling reproductive. (laughs) We have 10x the number of first time homeowners. 
Uh, 70% of the people at the company have gotten out of debt. 30% say they've gotten completely out of debt, but 70% have paid down debt. And people have between doubled and tripled their savings for retirement. And I, I think there's real implications here for UBI because the raise that they got is about the same raise that $1,000 times two adults in a home would get. And most of the people that work at Gravity, they are two adult homes. So I think there's implications there. So I thought, you know, we prove all of that and you would see this general macroeconomic trend of people thinking in this direction. But I think we've actually proven the opposite. And I think just the fact that the story is still big, I think we've proven that people aren't going to do it voluntarily more than anything else because we've shown it can work. We've shown we're like, you know, we're, we're still we're still here. Like we're I'm not poor. Like I'm out surfing and playing music. And you seem still, very happy and healthy, Dan. Yeah. Have a great life. And yet still nobody's doing it. And so it's really actually emboldened my perspective on what you're doing. <laughs> because yes! I've realized I'm not the answer. I mean, maybe I'm the answer in that I can be a part of the story and encouraging people and sharing what I've learned, sharing what I know. But we need to all come together behind these types of systemic solutions. And we can't keep glorifying individual one-offs like me. Freaking, man, I want to give you a hug. <laughs> I would love a Yang hug right now. Oh. This guy gives the best hugs for everybody else. Wow, that's so kind of you. You do. Uh, because what what you just said is so important where there there was like a period and I spent uh, you know seven years or so trying to make something positive happen with Venture for America and entrepreneurship and I thought something similar was like if I could just show people that helping these small businesses grow is just a better path than heading to the you know billion dollar bank or the you know consulting company or whatever the heck then we could really start to fix things and incredibly proud of everything that venture of america continues to do but i started realizing that the black holes gravity field at this point is way way too strong and that uh, the software of our economy that so many people have internalized that you know we're all economic inputs and that if you're a company you have to try and like get it down to the very last like you know penny <laughs> like what you can get away with and that as soon as you can yeah. and as soon as you can throw someone overboard you definitely should throw them overboard like all, all of these things are so deeply entrenched uh not just in the operations of these companies but in our society and people's minds um that I, I realize that we actually need to rewrite the rules of the economy um, both from the ground up and the top down simultaneously. But the top down component required control of the government. And then I was like, well, how do you get control of the government? And then it's like run for president and win and have the movement, <laughs> the revolution. It's like, and, and that most people watching this know uh, would have been a highly irrational ambition circa 2018 when, you know, a Andrew Yang was uh, an anonymous uh, entrepreneur. Uh, but it, it's born of the same kind of arc that you went through, Dan, because you think, okay, if I can demonstrate this works, then everyone will be like, well, it works. Let's all treat our people better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then when you're like, huh, people really won't treat like their employees better unless they get dragged to it kicking and screaming. And the only way to drag them to it kicking and screaming would be to, to actually get a hold of government and change some rules.
Well, and I think the other complicating factor that we all need to learn together is how does that process of change actually happen? Because I think we get this wrong. I think that there's a certain segment of the population right now that thinks like demonizing Joe Biden or Donald Trump will make that change happen. But we've had plenty of politicians do really shitty things that were worthy of demonization many times in the past, and that didn't really fix it. And I think if anything, we need to try to find a way to rise above those things and really talk to each other. So, you know, for me being from rural Idaho, a lot of the people that I grew up with are are Trump MAGA people um, or they're libertarians or they're people that are kind of predisposed to not necessarily uh, want to join some of these solutions like what you're talking about. And what I'm finding is when I actually just see them as a human being that's flawed the way I am, that's learning the way I am and have a conversation and don't try to kind of like extricate them from my life because our beliefs don't line up or the way we vote doesn't line up. And I just listen to them. We actually can influence each other and come together. And I think, you know, we need to be careful because right now the, the, the predominant way of persuasion is kind of by like shaming and bullying each other. And I don't know if that's going to get people into the fold of something like this. I'm pretty and, sure it's not, Dan. <laughs> and, and as you've shown for, for a long time and we're all seeing in real time, unfortunately, right now, like we need these changes. These changes are not really optional if we want to protect our way of life, which means using a suboptimal form of connection, persuasion, influence, whatever you want to call it. I don't know that we can afford to do that right now. And so I think a lot of people kind of on the liberal side of the equation, you know, need to soften up and engage a little bit more and not be so kind of like harsh and mean sometimes. Or, or maybe even find a different way to uh, frame some of the changes that we're making. You know, it's one reason why uh, we christened universal basic income the freedom dividend is because it tested better with broader swaths of the population (laughs) i liked it yeah it was hard for me to switch back i liked it that much and now we're kind of back to basic income uh and I actually loved the the freedom dividend as a branding as a way of explaining it and I thank you Dan yeah yeah yeah, no it it is kind of funny um but I, I think that language really helped that make the case to different types of people. There could be some of your uh, old neighbors in rural Idaho would be like, "I'm down with the freedom dividend." <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's like it's a uh, and and what what you're describing as like the the barriers between us and trying to make the case to different types of people. Just like you have these market incentives around how companies treat their workers. Unfortunately, there are market incentives around politics, where uh, political figures get rewarded more for ginning up like a passionate group of people uh, on a particular side than they do in reaching out and uh, solving problems. And that's going to destroy us, but but it, it's baked into um, the way a lot of candidates have to run, where they're much more concerned about getting primary, primaried by someone in their district because they're a safe seat uh, than they are in reaching to out to different types of people. I mean, I, I've been trying to write and encourage people lately, like, hey, like, I get that there's a lot of horrible things happening, but like putting some focus on the solutions, putting some focus on the changes that we want to have happen is really our best bet in this situation more so than the, you know, latest scandal that's going to keep us kind of all ginned up for an extra week or two.
Well, now 55% of Americans are for universal basic income, and it's something like 76% are for cash relief during the pandemic, which I have to say is going to be uh, a natural lead into universal basic income. Uh, so, so Dan, what's fascinating is I feel like you and I were kind of early on this, but now many, many millions of Americans have joined us. And now the big challenge is, is how the heck do we restore the connection between people and lawmakers where if enough of us want something, it actually happens. Uh, and, and so that's something I'm now engaged with very directly because I see that the mechanics of our democracy are actually going to be um, something we have to solve for. And that also includes our media, our social media. It's, it's interesting, but I now think that that's going to be um, one of the foremost challenges to trying to have something like universal basic income pass. Can you give me a little bit of the playbook on that? Because that'll help me to be out there, you know, like walking the walk, talking the talk with you. Sure. Uh, so the the first big move would be something around democracy reform, like ranked choice voting. So if you have ranked choice voting, then people will uh, be able to vote uh, more dynamically. Uh, you know, they, they, they wouldn't feel like they were going to like waste their vote. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you would make, let's call it, uh, you know, really either Democrats or Republicans more responsive to different types of people in their district, because instead of just having to worry about <laughs> like someone primarying them, it, it could be that there are a couple of different points of view that they have to account for. And yeah. so if you're pro-democracy, then ranked choice voting ought to be like a, a, a near absolute good. Yeah. Uh, and and so and it doesn't seem particularly partisan because it's not. It's like, look, we should just try and improve our democracy so it works better and it's more representative. Uh, and you can make very compelling arguments to people on on either side um, uh, th- that this would just be a better form of voting. Uh, so that's one big thing that I, I'm going to be pushing and championing because it's like a process change that strikes people as reasonable on both sides. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm right there with you, and I, I completely agree. I, I think also, you know, getting money out of politics is just we got to figure out a way. I know with the Supreme Court decision, it's just really hard, but like we just have to do it because it's going to kill us. That's exactly the, the kind of change that we need to, to make. So I was proposing, as you know, 100 democracy dollars for every uh, citizen so that you can just give it to your favorite candidate. And then all of a sudden we could wash out the corporate money. So that's a massive change that we need in the worst way. Uh, I'm for term limits for legislators because I just think it's too easy for someone to go to DC and then just make it all about preserving their spot and climbing this ladder. And the ladder unfortunately stretches up for decades. So if if you, Dan, let's say you were to do something bold and run for Congress, then and win, and you know I'm, I I would encourage this actually, uh, <laughs> though you have a business to run and the rest of it. But uh, if you were to show up there, then they'd be like, all right, now you're a low man on the totem pole. Go like dial for dollars, and if you play your cards right, maybe you'll wind up on one of these awesome committees in like eight years or <laughs> or, or, or something like that. Uh, and, and so that that that's not helping us solve these problems. Uh, and so I think uh, we should have term limits so that members of Congress see it as a term of service and not like career. And then you go there yeah. and try and get something done and you turn around. Now, there is a balancing act. Um, but to me, that that's necessary uh, because right now we have something of a gerontocracy where the average member of Congress, I believe, is about 62 years old, um, which makes them a little bit behind the curve on technology issues, among other things. But but um, their incentives aren't around solving our problems so much as they are staying where they are. 
Mm. And and that is something that we need to address if we're going to make progress. So that so these are some of the systemic fixes um, I'm going to be pushing for um, in the days to come. It's so needed. And I guess the thing that has me most worried just is timing, right? Because my business is completely dependent on small businesses. Like that's, we've dedicated our entire business. I've dedicated my entire life to just trying to help the little guy or gal or person that does not identify with one of those compete, you know, and you're just getting harder and harder, brother. I I feel for you. So yeah, it's crushing. And we, we need, I mean, right now we're, you know, Congress is in recess and we need some type of relief for everyday people, for small businesses. Like we need to do something and I just am like, you know, like we we don't want to see this change happen because it's going to be very hard to undo when very so hard. many of our small businesses are going under. As someone who's run a small business, you know, it's not like you can flip a switch, you know, like your employees all drift off and find other opportunities like your vendors, uh, you know, close down the line like you sell the equipment or furniture like you know you you can't just be like and i'm back (laughs) like like in a lot of these cases well and the small businesses make those individual choices as you highlighted earlier that are more human they're more in line with the human-centric economy that you've been championing that i've been championing because you know they go out there they know those people they're not making the they're not making the decision only based on what they saw in their business school class or what the spreadsheet says they actually know the decisions they make, how they impact real people. And so if we want to make our, our economy more efficient at, and ruthless at making all of our lives worse, all we need to do is completely get dominated by all these large companies and monopolies. And if we want to stop that from happening, we basically need to sell out and do whatever we need to to protect these small businesses because they really are kind of, as the Bible says, you know, a little bit of salt goes a long way. They are the salt for our economy, for our communities, having those small businesses still be around. Well, they provide the majority of jobs, too. I mean, uh, it's it's beyond vital. It's central. Uh, You know, if you imagine a world where everyone's working for Amazon, which... That world is happening. I don't know if you all can sense it. I mean, if, if you look at the Amazon employee count, like it, it's shooting up just as all of retail is closing. So um, yeah. it's not one for one, unfortunately. Like it's not like for every no. mall worker, like they're hiring an Amazon worker. They eliminate crazy. five jobs and make one. And they yeah. say they're job creators. Yeah, yeah. And then they go around being like, hey, look at look at the jobs we created. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, we've got like all this good PR around it and we're going to yell at you about all the jobs we created. It's like, hey, like, have, have you looked at the retail sector? You like, you, you know, that thing used to employ 11 million people. You employ 11 million people at Amazon. <laughs> like, no, but we, we employ, you know, whatever they employ, like hundreds of thousands. Uh, it's heartbreaking, too, to see the way they put the computers in charge of the humans at Amazon. That is really horrific to see. And there's, you know, there was that frontline documentary about this with Amazon. But basically, like, they're the people, the computers tell them what to do. And they want the people to act with the same ruthless form of efficiency that the robots and computers do. And that's really horrific and heartbreaking to see because it dehumanizes those people that are working. Then when you don't pay a living wage, you know, it dehumanizes their home life. So they have their work life dehumanized and their home life dehumanized at the same time. My friends at Amazon are very open. They say, you know, we're always just trying to automate our own jobs away. Like that's just the culture of the uh, the org. It's like an efficiency engine that place. Uh, and 
I mean, that's from Jeff on down. Like Jeff's sort of like a like a zealot when it comes to you know trying to get things done as efficiently as possible, and that filters down <laughs> pretty pretty quickly. Uh, and the antidote really is people going out and doing what they want to do in their community in the form of a small business, and then treating their employees well, treating their customers well, treating themselves. Um, well last because in my experience small business owners like have to look out for themselves after they look out for everyone else under the sun uh, but that's uh, that's the our only chance really uh, like this is the giant rebalancing I was concerned about and now the pandemic has sped us up so the, the stuff that 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 Andrew Yang like you know chicken little dystopian figure like uh, you know all of a sudden it, it's with us right now um, I'm with you on being very, very concerned about the timing, Dan. It's like 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 this stuff is mission critical and needs to get passed yesterday, uh, and we don't have that much time. I mean, in my case, I'm obviously pushing for a change in leadership, uh, and I hope that if you had, let's say, one party in charge of Congress and the White House, they could get massive solutions across the the the, the goal line that could hopefully help preserve a lot of these small businesses and these jobs uh, and the humans who uh, have dedicated years, decades of their, their lives to building them in many, many cases. And that's the other part of it, too, is that like if you dedicate decades of your life to something and then you see it uh, disintegrate, you know, like that, that's devastating. Uh, it breaks my heart when I think about it because I, I've been in their shoes. Uh, I know what it's like to be as you do. I mean, you, you're you know, you're like their champion. You're like the paragon of small business. You're like the small business of small businesses, or like the I, not so small. You're like the medium-sized business of small business <laughs> businesses. And, and the other thing, the other reason why you can be who you are too, and your company's leadership can look the way it does, is because you're private. Because you look up and you're like, hey, I can just make the decisions that I think are, are best. So my heart breaks just I, like I, yours is. I actually, though, think that we need a, a total change in mentality, a total change of heart and a total change of thinking. And I, I think you're championing it. Um, I think that we've convinced ourselves that people are not good, that people are bad and capital and corporations are good. And I think if you look at the data that I'm seeing and the experience I have, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, when we got hit by the pandemic, our employees said, we don't want anyone laid off. And we don't want any increased fees or decreased service for our small business clients. And they got together, they asked for my permission, took some time, got together, and they said, we don't want anyone to get an involuntary pay cut because maybe somebody just had somebody else get laid off or had schools uh, interrupted and all of a sudden expenses went up. So they said, we're going to we're going to do we're going to try to get together and do an anonymous, voluntary, complete restructuring where people take anonymous pay cuts. And we had 98% of the company asked to take a pay cut anonymously just through this like code of like number, this person. And then they turned around, pivoted, and started working with 20,000 small businesses that trust Gravity to get them reopened and putting all these solutions into place. They did things like come up with like this app where like coffee shops can have Starbucks type order ahead coffee, where veterinarians can move the front desk to the car because we've sent a text message that opens up and they can close out their folio. And they pivoted and did all these things. And we're not going to make money for a while. And I'm okay with that, but we're going to survive. We're going to be able to keep helping these small businesses as long as they're still around to be helped. 
And I think that's an example where it was shocking to me because when the employees pitched that to me as how we're going to recover as a CEO, it just went against everything I was ever taught and everything all of us are taught, which is we try to sell each other out. We try to hurt each other. But that is the behavior of corporations. And if we can actually empower people and, and in some ways disempower corporations or at least spread out the power a little bit, we're going to see more and more of that. And I think because the corporations are so bad, people come across as bad. If you deal with like a Comcast customer service rep, they seem like a genuinely bad person. And the reality is that person would do a fantastic job. They're a really good person if they weren't being so mistreated by the system and by their employer. And so I think that the, the cause for optimism that I have is we actually don't need to change people. We just need to change the system and the structure around people, take away what's constraining them, and then yes. people and then people will actually save us. But we have to actually do it, and that's the hard part. Yeah, we have to overrun uh, like the corporate system to give people a chance to bring out the best in ourselves. Um, and I 100% agree with you that people, if you believe in them, uh, like they expand it's well like you believed in your people and then they believed in themselves and then when dark times come they look around and say okay we can do something about this like you know i'm not going to wait for like the boss to come and tell us what's up it's like you know like i care about you i care about myself like you know let's try and solve for this Um, but a lot of it was because you created that environment and you believed in them you know, the reverse is true, too, that if you're a part of an organization where they treat you like shit all the time, <laughs> you know, and, and then like dark times come, then you'll be like, oh, no, like, like one, I know they're going to get rid of me if they can. And two, like, maybe I'll like throw my colleague under the bus because it's going to be like me or them. And like, you know, like that, like the and most Americans, unfortunately, are laboring under like the latter type of uh, situation or environment because of the corporate logic you're talking about. It's like if you had enough human leaders like yourself creating cultures where people believed in each other and ourselves and cared about each other, then you could solve these problems. And and my goal is to do what you've done at Gravity uh, for us all politically uh, and reach out and say, look, like these folks who are trying to turn us against each other, like just ignore them. Like the fact is we know how to solve our problems. Like you get it, I get it. We're pretty much like the the same, we have the same motivations, like let, let's just come together and get this thing done. Um, and hopefully that message, first it's needed, but hopefully that message uh, is so loud and powerful that we can override, like, you know, the the software, uh, you know, yeah. and, and, and in your case, the in my case, it was like, you know, it's like the political software and the media software and the rest of it that we have to try and override. Yep. Um, yep. And the interests, uh, you know, in DC and the rest of it. Uh, in, Economy-wide, though, it, it's true that corporations, the, the logic of corporations will grind us to dust. It will end up turning us into just like these these cogs in the machine, and the machine will eventually discard us. Well, and I think that's why it's so important to get messages out there. Like, I worked so hard trying to get this story out there, and people are like, why do you do it? It's like, well, if these stories can get out, people can see... Like people ask me all the time, how do you motivate your team? I'm like, I don't try to motivate them. I try to not demotivate them. Like I'm the bad guy in this equation. They're actually, they they will do great job just on their own. And most people will out there. And so if we can take away that and invest instead in people's capability and give them actual license and power, 
And But I feel like what we have to do is connect the dots between what you see happening at Gravity, the story I'm out there sharing, and what you're saying, because we can look at these as experiments. When we do what you're proposing in small settings, companies flourish, or at a very minimum, they still do okay. Like, I'm still here, I'm still happy, I'm still doing fine. And it's not like the entire, the, the lie we've been told is that the entire economy and all of our jobs will go away if we hold big companies accountable, if we put people first. And the opposite is true. As a whole, we will thrive. Now, will some people be less wealthy? Absolutely. And that's fine because when Jeff Bezos comes out and says he has to sp start a space company because he has so much money, it's the only thing where he can possibly spend even a tiny percentage of his money that he cares about. That's a signal of like, hey, actually, he could take that same amount of money and he could pay 250,000 people that work in his warehouse as a living wage. Those people could then invest in their skills and they could get better opportunities, not be held back. And those shifts, if we can find a way to harness some of these stories and some of the data that we're seeing, I think the proof is already there. I just think we have to get the word out and then we'll be able to fix this. Well, you are uh, walking the walk as well as talking the talk. And now that you've walked the walk, you're trying to tell people about what a great path it is. Uh, really, congratulations to you for being such a tremendous person, role model, CEO, business leader, uh, nonconformist, uh, messenger, and champion for humanity. Like, uh, you know, it, it is a beautiful thing when you believe in people and then they uh, prove you right. And then they end up inspiring you and then they inspire you to do more and do better. I've had that, that, that experience now multiple times. My campaign was the latest where, you know, like that, that, that might have gone quite poorly. <laughs> but instead it became like this beautiful movement of millions of people who just believe in humanity and see that if we actually invest in ourselves, like we'll... we'll um, do incredible things instead of like, I mean, what's the opposite perspective is like, oh, if you give people this money, they'll just like sit around and like, you know, like uh, smoke and drink or do something really negative. And you're just like, oh. <laughs> that's what the rich people do, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, poor people just like squander. And it's like, actually, yeah. I think poor people are a little more careful with their money than you are. <laughs> well, you proved that wrong with your campaign. I saw the way you empowered Carly and Zach and so many people to go out there and they made good decisions. They represented you well. They did a great job. And I think we've proven it wrong. But I will say, Andrew, that because of you and because your campaign, I am a better person. My life is better. And so I just want to do everything I can to support you, help get your message out. Because, you know, it's not like we're like fixed kind of individuals. We're open to influence. We're open to change. And the more that uh, uh, people that are in the business world can kind of see what you're saying, the better the world's going to be. Well, you'll be right there alongside me making the case, Dan, and we're going to fight it out. And we have no choice but to fight it out and win for humanity's sake. Uh, so thank you for being uh, like a figurative rock star. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and I got to say, you look the part. You, like, doesn't Dan look the part? If Dan just came out and is like, like Dan Price, like rock star, I'd be like, yeah, I believe that. <laughs> But instead, you're a figurative rock star, like helping light the path. Um, well, you're a rock star to me, Andrew. Oh, thank you, brother. I really appreciate it. 
Uh, and the fact that, that I, I've uplifted you in any way makes me really happy because I've been inspired by you uh, and your story is awesome. And more people definitely need to dig into what Dan has done. So aside from the incredible like journalistic accounts, uh, like is there someplace else that people can, can go to learn more about? Funny you should ask that. We didn't plan this, but I wrote this book about it. It's called Worth It. And I kind of chronicled like some of those highlights that I shared and a lot of other surprising things. I think basically it's an account of how most of what we're telling ourselves about the business world and what's possible is wrong, but it's just kind of my journey because I don't feel like at 36 I'm wise enough to really preach at people yet, and so it's just my journey of of kind of turning over rocks and discovering that kind of one step at a time. Um, the The publishing industry, you know, they offered to do a really, you know, big deal with it, but they wanted me to simplify it down to like, do this, like do this one thing. Seven Steps to a Magical yeah. Business by Dan Price. Yeah. Yeah. So I just self-published it because I actually just wanted to be honest with people about, yeah, maybe some places where I got it right, but more importantly, where I got it wrong and where there's opportunity for growth and change. So yeah, I, I worked really hard on this book called Worth It, and it's doing really well for an independent book. Well, Worth It by Dan Price. And people learn most from stories anyway, like, you know, instead of some some bulleted list. Um, so, yes, like there's a lot. I'm sure there's a there are a ton of people that are going to snap up Worth It and uh, hopefully dig into your story and, and learn from but, it. But buy it from a local bookstore, a, a physical local bookstore. Don't buy it from Amazon. I'm trying to get everybody to not buy it from Amazon. You might have to wait an extra week or two, but you can read another book in the meantime. You heard it here first. Don't get this thing at Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Dan. Congratulations on everything, man. Thanks, Andrew. It feels really nice to talk to you and reconnect. You know, so, uh, and I, I hope you don't take this in like the, you know, it's like, I knew that we were going to have this conversation, <laughs> you know, in, in the sense of like, like, I was like, of course, Dan's going to be on Yag Speaks because yeah. it was so, it was so obvious i like uh you know i was like oh let me try and do some other like oh, totally. <laughs> i love that i love but, but, that but but you should know like that this was to me like you Thank know you. Uh, like a hundred percent um like uh, an inevitability yeah well i feel like we like uh share something that i can't even put words to and it really means a lot to me to to meet somebody like you and to just feel like um a little bit of uh honestly like a feeling of being at home it's really nice well, it's it's like this uh, it's it's this opportunity to be human that both you and I have had. You know, it's like where you're in a you're in a role where it turns out your being more human ends up um, being very positive. Uh, you know, and and now I'm in the same boat where like you know I'm like a movement leader, so my being like a a, a human being is actually also very good for the movement. Um, and you look around, and you see these other people who are put in environments where it's like, huh, like you get rewarded for being a total asshole. <laughs> like a, an automaton and like doing like really mean things. Interesting. And like, you know, and so we're looking around being like the ranks of, of humanity are shrinking and like the ranks of like miserable uh, assholes is growing. Um, and, and so you and I are like, we got, we got to spread the antidote before like the freaking asshole contagion gets everybody. 
Yeah, well, and, you know, we actually do the things that capitalists claim to kind of glorify. We take risks. We do things the hard way. We don't necessarily take the easy way out because, like, we're willing to actually go for it. And, yeah, just throwing somebody under the bus for a long time, like, that's, like, an easier way out. There's so many ways, like, not paying people, right, is an easy way out, like, bowing down to investors, external investors. There's so many easy ways out. And I think that the there's I think that there's a lot of unfortunately wimps out there who just aren't willing to take that hard, difficult, you know, kind of risky path, you know, at the top. And it's so inspiring to see somebody who's like, hey, yeah, like everything's stacked against me, but I know what the right thing is. And so I can't let go of that even even if my chances are one percent or five percent or a tenth of a percent, it's still the only thing that's going to save us. And it's what we have to go for. So, Amen, brother. I, that that I, you pretty much summarized my thinking about friend running for president. It'd be look yeah. up being like, oh, it's only thing gonna save us. Like, whatever my yeah. chances are, you just gotta go do it. And and other than Bernie, maybe, uh, you know, I think you've had the most influence on polling actual the the people of any candidate, including Donald Trump and Joe Biden, of actually changing the culture and changing how people are thinking. Like you and Bernie were the two people I think that were doing that. And so that's inspiring to think about and Hopefully people that are more kind of like in, I don't want to name any names, but people that kind of put their finger up in the wind, hopefully you've actually changed the direction of that wind. So when they put their finger up, they're going to come up with a different answer than they would have had you not run. Thank you, man. We're, We're trying. And one of the things too, like you, it's like, you know, you have to operationalize it. So in our case, it's like trying to help elevate certain down ballot candidates where if, if the, the, you know, wind testers are like, oh shit, like. You know, you go you go that direction, you win. You go that direction, you lose. It's like, oh, maybe I should go in the winning direction. So, like, well, yeah. I'm I'm trying to grind to make the right direction the winning direction, uh, and we've got a real shot at it. I mean, there there's some candidates who've won their primaries, and I think may end up in Congress uh, that are aligned with you and me. Um, so it's been fun on that level, uh, and th- there is like a, you know, a band of humans still fighting for the future, um, and I'm happy to say that they are like you, like some of my favorite people. <laughs> so, yeah. so it's got that going for it too. It's like you get really awesome people together. It's a fun party to be a part of. Like the the, I mean, I th- still sometimes long for the days of the active Yang presidential campaign. But even you know the movement that you've continued to carry forward. And, you know, how it connects to what I'm doing and a lot of other people out there. It's just a wonderful group to be a part of. It's a, it's just a pleasure. And I think that's one thing that maybe also could help us is like, it's actually pretty nice to be in a place where people have their needs met, where they're taken care of, where like they care about each other. They care about like the whole and they're not just out for for themselves. Like that's a really wonderful place to be. And being in the opposite place, like kind of soul sucking. So, yeah, yeah, I, I think we can continue to grow during this time just in a different way. You're right. It's a little bit less like, ah, let's do it. <laughs> I like that one, though. I'm not going to lie. Your campaign was the most fun campaign that I've ever seen in my life by a long shot. So, hey, and, and, you know, I do miss it. And I, there's a, like, you know, there will be a time when I, I'm sure we get back to, so, you know, like the, the that version. Um, I like I'm still fighting in my own way, you know, it's like a little bit less uh, um, strident, I guess. But, uh, you know, and like a, a few more like 
genuflections to <laughs> to like Joe and Kamala, but you yeah, know, it's all yeah. good. It, it, You're doing great. I love that video you made, by the way, with the other primary candidates uh, for the DNC. I caught that on YouTube and I thought it was really well done. Yeah, you know, what was funny is some of the production team behind the DNC was Yang Gang. They actually said it to me when they were filming. They're like, hey, FYI. Like, I was like, I'm Yang Gang. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then they, and then they like, like got a good clip of me in there. I'm like, nice work. <laughs> nice work, production team. <laughs> How, is your family doing all right? Everything going okay with home front? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're all right. They're good. Things are good here, man. Um, you know, yeah. like a, a lot of it, it's true. This is actually the microcosm of the world we're in right now. Like, as long as, like, daddy's good and, like, my spirit is good, then, like, you know, because I, I reflect on it. So when I think about how my family's yeah. doing, most of it has something to do with how I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, because, like, if, if I'm good and I, I'm uh, not to say, like, daddy's end all be all the family because I'm not. But it's just, like, my, my sense of how the family is doing is, like, very much uh, dependent upon my own state of mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that, you know, thing that people talk about, like you put the mask on your own face, then you help other people put the mask. And I think people get it wrong in two ways. They start putting masks on other people's faces on the one side of the equation. But then on the other side of the equation, they take all 200 masks and put them on theirs. And so I think, you know, us staying healthy, you know, doing our health routines, like making sure that we're like so literally just physically healthy is such a game changer in terms of how we can help other people around us. Especially for you and me, because, you know, like, you we're both carrying a lot of weight. A lot of people need us. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool to see. I'm well, Dan, I can't wait for this conversation to be out there. Uh, it, it was a blast. And, uh, yeah, you. like, uh, let us know if there's anything we can do to help. Um, Sounds great. But, like, thrilled to be fighting this fight alongside you. Thank you. Same here. I'm, I'm available anytime you need me. Thank you for listening in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did... Please do subscribe to Yang Speaks and click on notifications so we can let you know every time we have a new episode.